Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Welcome to another episode of the Exponential Minds podcast. My name is Nicholas Badminton. I'm a futurist. I travel the world speaking to organizations and governments about how the world's going to change. And today I'm delighted to be talking to a great friend I met a few years ago at an investment conference, Sasha Despotovsky. Sasha has a decade of investment experience in the renewable and medical sectors via posts with hedge funds and investment banks in USA and Canada. Five years in mergers and acquisitions as a director and special advisor for the big four in Norway. And he's a VC fund manager in Luxembourg and Malta, director to two publicly listed companies and advisor to startups. And overall, he's raised 2.5 billion US dollars uh, in the work that he's done. Today, he's the managing director of Hinner Park Capital, a global microfund and advisory agency. Sasha, as always, it's incredibly good to chat to you and uh, it's good to be connecting to you over in Norway. Thank you, Nick. Likewise, I always enjoy our chats and, and dialogues, uh, whether professionally or socially. And uh, I look forward to dissecting the world today. I, I think it's re it's really good. We had a great conversation last week, and it was like, okay, let's let's cap let's capture some of these thoughts at this uh, very exciting time in the world. Um, exciting, terrifying, fearful, optimistic. You know, COVID nineteen, the pandemic has has certainly shaken things up. But, but you know, we always start on this podcast by asking, you know, how did you get to where you are today? You know, you you're you're originally from Canada, and now you're in Norway. But what's that journey been like? So journey's been, I think my family has, you know, we're scattered at the moment in 12 different countries, which became very visible during the COVID side of things, you know, trying to maintain different assets, making sure everybody's okay. Uh, we, we hail from kind of Central Eastern Europe originally, but we've, uh, we're scattered between Australia, South Africa, all over Europe and North America, both US and Canada. Um, I grew up in Vancouver, UBC grad. I uh, actually studied genetics um, at UBC and I was en route to become a doctor or that was the trajectory anyway, medical school, that whole, you know, the whole white coat process. And I had an epiphany at some point, uh, very deep into the journey of my thesis and uh, decided that I believe that was better suited for different careers. So I made a switch, uh, spent time in the US. Uh, you know, I moved to the Mecca city as far as finance goes, uh, did a deep dive uh, with hedge fund, spent some time with a number of investment banks and worked my way around back to Canada, back to Montreal, which is one of my favorite cities on the planet, and uh, made a switch to Europe about six years ago. Uh, parked myself in Northern Europe, in Norway, which is, the draw was the socialism and the truest form of socialism on the planet. I wanted to really understand the mechanics of how this tiny little nation, very much like Luxembourg, very much like Switzerland, could do so much with, in a way, little, or by way of how they approach things. And from here, I've operated primarily out of Austria and France, but I really kind of found a foothold in the, in the marketplace here, and I'm still learning the nuances of it. Uh, it's just been a good place to live, essentially. 
it's interesting that you ended up in Norway, you know, that if you, I've never heard it being called like the truest form of socialism, but you know, on the flip side of that, the huge amount of natural resources that made them insanely wealthy as well. right? Absolutely. And what I found fascinating, and this is more of a historic premise, Norway has never experienced a golden rush of a sort where the currency has become so hypervalued. Like we're looking at, the, you know, the Dutch tulip sensation where, a commodity becomes so over-commoditized in a sense, and then that's probably a bad way of using it, but Norway has never experienced that. The Norwegian kroner is actually less valued now than their counterparts in Denmark and in Sweden. And yet economically, Norway is much stronger as a country and smaller, which is fascinating. And it's fascinating as well that they're starting to divest away from the fossil fuel industry as well and sort of leading the way. I started chatting to um, very large investment funds a couple of years ago, $200 billion investment funds and saying, you know what, New York City, um, they're going to they're gonna sue the fossil fuel companies for pollution. And by the way, Norway is starting to divest. And over the last couple of years, that's been incredibly, it's been kind of a painful process for them only because of the they're so deeply entrenched in that industry and the industry has been so, you know, had such a long relationship with them as a country. Right? It did. And what's fascinating, Norway is very conservative from their investment perspective, but they're also very foresightful in a way. Uh, Norway single-handedly is probably one of the largest single investment groups in uh, Manhattan real estate, or they have been historically. So the nuances keep shifting. They'll keep investing and divesting, but they will go with safe, safe places. So that's, making that's, this, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I never knew that about their, their sort of deep investment in Manhattan real estate. Sure. Um, they do the same with London. There are a few pockets around the world where real estate is a very good stronghold. And uh, obviously Manhattan is one of them. Um, but Norway also invests quite heavily in Canada or not heavily, but to a large degree in Canadian stock market. Uh, there, there's a number of portfolio companies which they hold. So it's nice to kind of examine what verticals have interested them and why. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. I, I, I had a chance to meet a, a lot of different uh, people that practice foresight and futurism when I went down to work at, with the United Nations in Songdo, South Korea last year. And there was a huge amount of people there from, from Denmark, Norway, Finland, Sweden. It, it seems to be this hotbed of progressive thinking. The, the, the Brits are known as their, their strategy and the Nordics are known as their foresight. So, you know, what a great place to be. And I think it is really good to pivot this conversation to, to really start thinking about, you know, what you're learning, what you're starting to think about in terms of this shift, in terms of the investment focus that's happening right now. You know, what industries are starting to really start to rise into the forefront of, of interest and in what geographies as well? There are two kind of approaches to this. And Maybe it leads back to some of my learnings. Coming to Norway, you know, I, I grew up and I drove myself through kind of through fear and through necessity to do certain things. As an investment banker, it was kill or be killed scenario, I guess, if I can summarize it that way. And I'm seeing a lot of less of that in Norway, actually, almost none. That whole fear-driven motivation is non-existent. So for me, it was a challenge to understand what is it that drives people to get out of bed in the morning and do things. And yet, countries very efficient, very prosperous, things happen every day. So obviously, there's a number of mechanisms in place that uh, make things function. Um, it, but it seems that that force that about thinking of future, thinking of equality, having the trust and relationship with the government both ways is something that's quite refreshing, which we don't see a lot of places globally, you know, given what's happening in the US right now, given some of the tensions in Canada, 
in Toronto in particular. Uh, Norway almost has none of that. On a local level, it exists, but on a global level, very transparent, very strong. And that's been nice to see. And the investment strategy follows protocol. On a national level or federal level, investment strategies are very long-term, forward-thinking. Let's make the shift what, what's going to matter for our generations to come. Locally, you see that opportunistic-driven patterns, which you see elsewhere, but from a different perspective. It's much more greed-driven versus fear-driven. So, so you're saying it's, it's greed, green or greed? I'm seeing a lot more greed driven on the processes. Yeah, uh, get as much the, money the, as we can, make as much money as we can as, in as little time as possible, right? Sure, sure, that always exists. That's, a, that's human nature, I think, 101. Right. But there has been a green shift lately in Norway, driven by the government, as it is globally elsewhere. You know, in the next one and a half, two years, in the capital markets at least, we're going to see a massive input of capital towards green technologies, clean tech, and so on. And that's one of the trends we could follow on or for next year's kind of that's that's the future in a sense yeah and we we you know what we've seen investors like warren buffett dropping his airline stock a lot of the oil stock we've seen a lot of people around there norway's divesting weekly it seems like there's more countries and more funds divesting away from from fossil fuels world bank has been pretty clear on its position on this can you just explain a little bit about that world of green tech who are the movers and shakers in that world so Obviously, pension funds globally, starting in Canada, OMERS being a group that I really love. I love what they've done on the venture side and both on, on the larger end. Uh, Norwegian government, quite heavy. And then you're seeing a lot of family offices and, and pension funds in the Middle East doing the same processes. They're moving slowly away from the core industries, which have had you know, oil and oil related, into, into green side, meaning anything that will do with fairly disruptive industries such as wind, solar powered, and so on, that, that have an impact on environment, positive and negative, but that are perceived more positive at the given moment, given everything else. You know, the balance industry impact will shift to some degree, and you're seeing a lot more movement into new technologies and kind of the new, new wave in this side. Yeah, so when we, when we think about green and thinking about building out these green portfolios, obviously you're from the from the investment side of things, the mergers acquisition side of things, it seems it seems to be like these these funds are, are overtaking the funds that are that are getting behind fossil fuels. I mean, we we see that about a hundred companies in the world are responsible for seventy percent of emissions. We see that transportation is clearly a contributor to pollution. Obviously, the the, the big pause from the pandemic showed that the huge amount of emissions reductions. I mean, people like you and I are normally on planes several times a week, <laughs> if, not a, that is... if not a month. And, and that's, all, that's all changed right now. But, you know, th these worlds of, of, of gr you know, green technologies, wind, solar, and, and you know, wave, wave technologies, super grids, and whatever, how's that going to fundamentally shape and change how the world's going to operate? Um, I think there are three potential ways, but the first, the first movement has to be how does it generate revenue? There has to be a revenue generating aspect on some fundamental level, and it's driven primarily by technology. There has to be a method via capital markets or via monetization, via reaching revenue that smaller technology, smaller companies allow more efficient, more practical way of reaching kind of A, A to B scenario. And 
that this is the intersecondary process where you're looking at what are the ways to save or reduce usage of something versus versus overconsumption, which will finally lead into the final wave, which is conscious awareness of will me buying this apple have an impact on a a farm in, in South America. So yeah. it's always going to be driven and my thought process is always can we be conscious of what the pathway of a product into our household looks like but it's always going to be driven by how available is this to me how substantial this model is to reduction to kind of so it's a, it's a pathway it takes it takes time to reshape the way we think as consumers and that's going to be driven by larger entities that will offer us product in certain ways yeah, Paul, Paul Sappho but, says it takes about 30 years for technology to seep its way into yeah. culture. And once technology is embedded in culture, then everything changes. It's like electric vehicles. I drive an electric vehicle, sure. um, but very few people do. But the little pocket sure. where I live, uh, there's, there's six electric vehicles, Tesla, Chevys, like Nissan, right. whatever, right? Um, so no. culturally, my little bubble is very aligned and quite progressive, but we're sure. also earning more money in a way than, than people yeah. that... You're talking about on, on, on the ground level, everyone in the world actually having that consciousness in a way. That's and it. That's, and that's when the, the, do you think that's when the, the shift in, in sort of this, this sh true global shift towards a green mindset is going to really start to take place? It, it has to happen in waves. And, and you live in a very good pocket, which, is, which does things from a conscious perspective. I live in a country that's like that. I have... In my underground garage, I think 40% of the vehicles are electric. Right. I just bought a hybrid. I, I, can, I went halfway. So I have an electric engine and a diesel. And I think it's a, it's a mixed diesel. Yeah. And, but Norway, Norway has been a test market for electric vehicles now for a number of years. And now Holland has become one as well. They're smaller nations, but they have the infrastructure and then the, they have the financial means and the conscious awareness that people can start to do things slightly differently in order to drive the rest of the world to do it the same way. It will be quite a long time before a second or third nation country will be able to afford a process like this because it's not always cheaper. But the way a Western society accepts it and the way the Western society can influence the process somewhere else will lead that, that methodology. You know, the way Michael, the, the, the day Michael Jordan decides to focus on being very consciously visible about what he's doing in his life. He's going to influence, you know, half a billion people at once. It's, it's that type of concept that we need to really push and shift. Yeah. And there's a flip side to this as well, right? Sure. Because you're saying, sure. you know, these small, small nations, they're like greenhouses. You know, you test the product, you get it right. You get people excited, you create advocates and hopefully it bursts out markets markets uh, pay attention capital flows in even with companies like tesla and spacex and whatever we're seeing some of those effects and it takes years 15 20 30 years but what about china you know we, we're looking at china sure. going full tilt everyone says you know coal burning in china and this and that and industry they're a totalitarian government that's literally saying okay here's the new world i, I was reading the other day on alibaba you can buy a 930 US dollar electric vehicle, <laughs> you know, yes, and yes, you've, got companies like, you've got companies like BID, BYD, like the, the sort of building out huge amounts of, 
electric vehicle inventory and people are buying it and, and lapping it up and, and they're looking at super grids. They're building huge solar arrays in Mongolia. They're, they're building relationships with Russia. But surely at, at that scale, that's going to be a disruptive influence in, in this sort of new green market, right? It, it will be. Well, one thought experiment that I've had weeks back during the whole COVID thing, you know, both you and I were flying 100 plus times a year. We were covering a very wide geography. I had a scheduled, I think it was a month ago, we were supposed to both be in London and obviously none of us could be there. That's but, you right, know, yeah. That, that's, that's how we operated. Um, all of a sudden, the world came to a full stop because of COVID and that happened this year. Next year could be something completely different. What I loved through the thought experiment was saying, what if every year we had 30 or 40 days where we could just stop all traffic, maybe in portions of geography, and let's watch the impact that has on the environment, and let's watch the impact that has on the economies in different, different parts of the world. That became a very powerful kind of method to try to measure what is it that we could do as one species on this planet to, to help ourselves be more aware, be more present in a moment. And China, obviously, is a significant mover in that space. Uh, my last trip in China, to China was in November last year, just as COVID was about to happen. I was meant to travel earlier this year and coincidentally ended up not flying in January. One of my clients did, and he was one of the last flights in and out, in a sense, before China shut down for the, for the spring festival or, or the, the big holidays. And then COVID became, became official. So watching the the, the slowdown in economics, in flight, and the changeover in nature, how quickly it went, came back to a normal equilibrium, gave me hope that we could potentially in the future influence through different either governmental approaches or different methodologies, the same protocol over and over again. We can do a lot better. But it will take a couple of strong drivers like certain geographies in Canada, US, Norway, Holland, for instance, that will drive these processes and that will allow the world to accept it. And the moment China says, let's do it, that's going to be a really big needle mover. Yeah. And, you know, by 2030, China is going to be the, the, world's, the, the world's number one economy. India just behind that. And then the US, it's the changing of the guard. What I find, interesting, what I find interesting about China is that they're going to almost become the de facto ringleader for a number of different Asian countries just because of their influence in terms of technological might, capital, the ability to move quickly. And these new worlds of electric supergrids and almost zero, zero margin sort of electrical power that's traded in real time. And are we headed towards a world where this wave is going to be, and the ripples are going to be felt in the West, in, in places like the UK and Europe and places like the US and even Canada. Or are we going to find the sort of the breakdown of globalization is going to cause problems and divide in those situations? See, I'd love to be an optimist and say it's the first case. However, there will be breakdowns in the system. I think that always happens. There's always, let's take UK as an example. Wonderful country, imperial, created a lot historically. UK uses the most awkward electricity grid in Europe right now. <laughs> UK drives, and my aunt lives in London, love him dearly. They drive on the wrong side of the road. The only country in Europe. So metric system, non-existent. UK runs things their own way, and it's going to be a pocket going forward. This whole premise with Brexit and political breakdown, again, of the system. System exists, but it's not efficient. Uh, that exists in many pockets around the world. The UK is just very visible right now. So 
China will push the way in certain aspects and revenues and China's very nimble and adaptive. You know, you can plug any socket into any, like you can plug anything into anything in China. It just, it's engineered in a way to be efficient that it works. Airport infrastructures, anything, anywhere you go, it's built for next 20, 30 years. Like it's preemptively structured ahead of time. And I look forward to the rest of the world trying to build in that way. Because U.S. certainly hasn't. They've done it in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Germany did it several times for different reasons. They had to rebuild it. But China definitely has that advantage that infrastructurally they're superior. And they're going to be driving that process until others adapt to that way of doing things. Yeah, and there's also a difference in, in the mindset as well. It seems like China plans for hundreds of years into the future, as does much of Asia. There's a lot of short-termism in Europe and the West. It is. And you have this massive, like Europe itself, you know, it's a wonderful continent. I love living here, but there's so much fragmentation happening in investment communities. French venture groups won't invest much into German groups and convert. So there's this massive ecosystem of walls that are, that are created by just our own way of doing things. Larger family offices, larger funds and infrastructures will always think long-term. In Norway, for instance, they really think 15, 20 years out in a sense. China does it at a zero to it. So it's those long-term and mid-term drivers that will influence the way we do things going forward. And that's why more they're connected and interconnected, the more China can interact globally with other groups from Middle East to different parts of Asia to different European and North American groups and even Latin Ams and African. You will see that progression moving forward, which ultimately will create some geographies to be very appealing, like Africa as a continent, you know, 54 nations, so much beauty there, so much power resources-wise, human power, capital-wise. Largest invest- investors are China and North America to some degree. And it's interesting to see how much forward thinking will be implemented in those little groupings there before we see massive impact on a global scale. Yeah. We saw Africa, there was a lot of turmoil over the past few decades. It seems to have calmed down. Their response to, to COVID-19 has actually been incredible. You know, we've seen innovation in Somalia with the, with the, with the dollar COVID-19 test. Places like Nigeria really locked it down. Sure. And Nigeria is going to be exploding with, with incredible thinkers and, and, and progressive. So I think so a couple of other people on the podcast in the last few weeks have been out of South Africa, a base in South Africa now. They, they, they see the power of the African diaspora as it spreads around the world. And I think many of the listeners would have, will know people that are of African descent or, or still live in Africa and, and recognize the power that they have. It's the same with Latin America as well. But Africa and Latin America seem to be these two big targets in the world for people to go in and help them progress and get better. A piece of research recently around Russia and China going in to help financially a number of different countries in Latin America. And this gets really interesting because then it puts Russia and China on the doorstep of America. It does. And, you know, altruistically helping, I don't know if it's the right word, it's economically driven process when a larger nation goes to help a smaller one. There is a trade-off as to why they're helping versus not, especially when it comes to China and Russia. Even when Norway does it, and I may get criticized for making this statement, you see a lot of Scandinavian individuals and groupings doing a lot of work in Latin America and in Africa. But there's a background to that comes becomes oil. 
because that's been, at least in Norwegian case, a main driving factor for exposure to create families to actually spend time in Latin America, to spend time in, in the certain parts of Africa. Some of my trips, you know, in the last few years have been to places in Africa I've never even thought of going. I went to Chad, for instance, landlocked country where you almost need a president to sign your passport so you can get into the country. And those, those drivers, you know, economics will drive the process, but it will be people's desire to improve and better a process that will remain there, that will actually create a stronger, deeper impact. And that's where you now are seeing a lot more impact funds being born or reborn or restructured, where they're not measuring only the ROIs and the returns financially, but they're looking at how much of improvement are we creating in this particular process. Like I'll give you an example. There's a local medical family called Lerdal. It's a very odd spelling. Uh, they, you probably know the Annie CPR doll. Everybody tra trains it. So that was invented here in Stavanger where I'm based. And it's one local family that done that this beautiful medical company, it's family owned, you know, good revenue. Recently, about a year ago, they've created a notion of a million lives fund where they're putting their own money into the process and their, their impact for next, over next 10 years will be to save or improve 1 million lives. So yes, this fund will be altruistic in a lot of ways. It will make money, of course, but the premise of it is to create an impact on, on an individual life level anywhere on the globe. And I love those initiatives and more of that that we see, more of that impact-driven process, more we will see that caliber and, and quality of life raised in certain geographies which aren't necessarily close to us right now. And it needs to be done with a level of altruism as well. You know, this is people, planet, purpose, you know, the triple bottom line, the, the new world, That's right. impact investments. So are, are, we, are we careering towards a place that, you know, we have this conversation in 10 years' time and we're, we're living in a world where the majority of investments that are happening are in green funds and impact-driven investments as well. I think there will be a lot more awareness of that. There will be always a very capitalistic-driven processes where money, money is king. And, and you know, I've, I work within, you know, I worked at PwC, which is very similar to KPMG and Deloitte and so on. They're great, great groups. Uh, but they're bottom line, you know, driven in terms of revenue, and they have impact programs and they do great social awareness things as well. But bottom line, they're driven by, by finances in a lot of ways. And it's not a critique. It's just, you know, what sustains the model. They're big, big employers. Uh, there will be a large shift because of the pressures, because of visibility to focus on that impact. And I hope that in 10 years from now, a significantly larger number of, of funds and groupings will make investments based on how good does this do to the world as well and finding a good financial model to support it. And then having government groups and legal systems that support that improving animal welfare in Australia, for instance, and improving, I don't know, a, a, a certain population of benefit to education or so on somewhere else in the world will be valued significantly in addition to other ROIs as well. Yeah, and I think that education is being seen as this huge future industry. I mean, not only as we're seeing disruption and, and people of, of the ages of 30 to 50 years old having to mm -hmm. upskill, change skills, really re find their new position in, in what I call the wisdom economy. But, you know, these, these educational institutions are going to get bigger and bigger. I think it's also interesting to see how many of uh, you know, glo global, huge, multi-billion dollar brands are really starting to step up. In, in terms of th their, 
contribution to the world. So I think uh, this week I've just I've just read IBM's walking away from like facial facial recognition technology and and you know surveillance based technology. I think Microsoft staff have just stood up to really start questioning you know how, you know working with organisations that that enable police to do surveillance and you've had Google employees stepping up and saying hey you know we we don't want to go after the Pentagon's Jedi contract you know it, it, it's almost like the kids that are coming up are going to shape the world as much as the investment managers that are top pumping money in and, and, and the markets as well. Oh, I believe so. I, I think that there is, especially in certain pockets globally, uh, it's this new wave. And we've had this historically many nuances driven by certain wars or situations globally. You had the future thinkers and the leaders coming up, being shaped and influenced by today's events. I mean, there, you know, right now there's a massive pressure on the way policing is done globally and for better or for worse i think it's a good thing at the end whatever whatever we come out as as a nation or global nation ultimately will be much better for everybody involved both the police officers many of them who are just you know tremendous individuals i i grew up uh, i'm very close friends with a couple of rcp officers um but there's so much stigma attached to both sides of the equation. So I hope that whatever comes out ultimately, once the emotion is removed from the process, will be much stronger and better and will make us both more aware, but also be more conscious of, you know, every decision we make, what, what is the influence. Yeah, and this comes back to your idea around a global consciousness. In places like America, they call it like the Green New Deal, but it's kind of the wrong way to talk about it in a way, because it's not a deal. It's like a green, sustainable life that's equitable. I mean, how do we create that equity, that ownership that, there's, that isn't just shareholder based? I, I kind of find that the idea of shareholders sometimes goes against the idea of doing good in the world. I have this every time I'm meeting with a new portfolio company or just a company that I really like. I question them a lot on compliance and I really like to look at board structures and influencing factors within the company itself. And what I love about capital markets kind of as an extension is the, the requirement to have independent directors as part of every board. In the private sphere, you don't see this. So my process with a lot of groups that I spend time with is I influence them always or I try to that they need to find one or two directors that are completely independent from the group as a whole. There should not be investors. They should be even at an early stage be you know, just there to provide guidance, advice, and opinion to challenge the norm. And in a sense, I love when groups actually start embracing it because it helps them grow. They are much more aware of processes. And even revenue-wise, they tend to be, even they're very revenue-driven, especially at the early stage, this still allows them to, to reach that level of revenue in a much healthier way without making too much sacrifice. They, they really have good checks and balances in place. And that's what it is, ultimately being aware. Yeah, that awareness, the checks and balances of the world. I mean, going back to your two, two scenarios as well, this is the, the optimism of collaboration or the divide and, and deliance in, in the world, this ability to step up. Uh, people, planet, purpose, impact and driven investments, thinking green, but acting green uh, as well. And that's the part, the acting green part. I mean, I've made us, you know, every year I see groups making commitment to stop eating beef, stop eating meat, uh, people making a conscious choice, we, we will fly less. What if we just couldn't fly? Because there's a differential between, you know, me being able to jump on a flight and, you know, be in three different countries in three different days now versus 
me planning on, you know, going somewhere and spending three months there and being part of the global, local economy for that period of time. I think there's a much different methodology we could start employing if we start thinking of the, the positive impact we could have by doing this. Yeah. Do we need to have, yeah, yeah. Do we need to have this many airlines and this many groupings to allow us to go many places to explore them? Or should we logistically be able to, you know, go to the South of Europe and spend three to six months there in a lot of different nuances and actually part of the ecosystem, become part of the ecosystem? You know, I'm looking at, uh, I have a summer home in, in, in Croatia, Southern Croatia, and I'm looking at the startup industry that's, that's grown massively locally. And it's driven by a really interesting gentleman who's Dutch by descent, but he's married, I believe, to a, to a girl of local descent. And they have four or five kids. And he's just been, he moved his entire business there. And he has become a, this big speaker about the importance of just being embedded locally and what you can do, the, the ecosystem that's, that's built around him. And I like seeing that. You have these little pockets that are just going to spring up everywhere because of who's present. I mean, yourself, uh, you are a very prominent speaker. You and I have spent a lot of time in different venues. And then looking the impact that you have on different communities from the business perspective as well as socially as well is you are a massive, massive influence. People pay attention to what you say. Now, why can't we have you spending six months a year in, in Beijing, for instance? I think that would be really good for very, the community that's really well developed there, but it would be good for you and for the communities there as well. It's really interesting. I just had this conversation with my partner last night, exactly this conversation. And, 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 and it's like, oh, okay, we're in Toronto. We love it here. We love, we love uh, Canada. We're both Canadian. I'm obviously a naturalized Canadian British at birth. But why can't we go and spend, you know, six months uh, living in California and use that sure. as a base? Six months living in Eastern Europe, you know, Estonia yeah. or Lithuania or, or places like that that, that, that we sure. both love as a base because, you know what, you can still hop on planes, you can still do that business. And, and ultimately, you can still do like green keynotes by plugging in to Zoom and doing these, these kinds of uh, activities like we're doing right now. You can connect with people. I'm doing a few keynotes over the next uh, few weeks with very large organizations that are hugely impactful. And I go to my event space and you know what? There, there's co-working spaces around the world. And I do think that it's interesting, like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just about to become a father. You've just be, become a father. And I think That's these right. perspectives, it, it's like, who's, who's gonna change the world? And it's gonna be our children. But how are we going to expose those children to new places and new people and new cultures? Because diversity has to come through exposure, right? And I think that, that, that's, some, that that's something that happens in investment. And that's why you travel so much. No, it is. And, you know, one thing about growing up in Canada, at least for a good part of my life, is I didn't realize or I didn't realize. I became much more aware of how blessed we are in Vancouver or Toronto or whatever cities we spend time in because of that diversity ethnically. Uh, I mean, the food alone is, is surreal the exposures and influences um, is just, it's something that's much beyond you can see other places. Coming back to continental Europe, you know, I, I love the fact that you have to go somewhere, you know, you, you fly for 45 minutes, you're in a different speaking country. But within that country itself, insularly, you have a lot of pockets of ignore, people that are not exposed to as much as we have been exposed to. So you don't see the diversity on a local level, which becomes problematic down the road. In Norway, I get a question often, why are you here? Well, I mean, it's, it's an awesome place to live. Well, but why are you not from here? 
your name is not Canadian, how are you Canadian? And, you know, you go back to statistics that 41% of Canadians are probably first or second generation immigrants in a sense. You know, we're, we're an immigrant nation in that regard. Like you, I was naturalized as well. I wasn't born in Canada, but I feel Canadian through and through. Like, I don't, you know, I see the flag, I hear the, the national anthem, both English or French version. And, you know, yeah. my heart goes a little bit soft because it is the place that's mine. Um, now being a global child and my family will be quite global, they will always have a place under the sun somewhere. But I just want them to have exposure as much as possible to understand where they belong and why. And they can make that choice themselves. Yeah, and I think that this is a this is a really good point, you know, to, to summarize what we've been talking about. It, you know, exposure to the new world, being out there, you know, growing as families, feeling our responsibility. You know, green is an investment in your consciousness as much as it is in the industries that are going to change the world, as much as the markets that are going to change the world. And I think people like you and I, yeah, we're going to have to jump on planes, but that's because we're going to be speaking to delegates from multiple nations from around the world that are going to be able to make better decisions. And as long as we change one mind along the way, you know, 15, 20 years time, uh, when we're a little longer in the tooth and have slightly less hair, uh, we would have actually made a big, bigger change in the world. And I'm hoping 15, 20 years, we're going to be in a world that's, that's truly in a new less of a, an industrial revolution and more of a true, true green revolution that, that's, that's literally putting the planet on a path for the next thousand years. No, no, it's true. And one driver that I love in this entire COVID realm is that we came to realization as organizations that we can work remotely, we can have more flexibility as to where we're geographically based. And you're seeing adjustments made by, by the Fang Group, by the, some of the larger tech companies. They're saying, fine, live in Colorado, live in you know, uh, Buenos Aires for all we care. Just be available, get things done. I've operated in this sense for the last number of years with Hina Park Capital. Most of my staff and consultants, we're, we've been scattered from Singapore you know, to, to Vancouver, essentially, or, or Fraser Valley. And we still got get things done. It's still very effective. We meet globally face-to-face but it's not necessary all the time and it would be nice to have individuals who are like born and raised in vancouver for instance which is a great city i love vancouver I'm, I'm, uh, they always make the claim vancouver is the greatest place on earth i said yes but prove it how do you know live abroad but live abroad like don't just go visit cancun and say i've been to mexico go to mexico city spend six months there and then tell me what are the differences and different driving factors between mexico city and vancouver move to Bogota, move to Lisbon. Lisbon's a great city these days. I mean, I love the way they've changed things um, to allow expats to come in and spend time. And it's that driver that having the expats and that capacity, skills, and brain power to be concentrated somewhere, to start businesses, to improve businesses, that's very crucial for us and to create that influencing zone around them. And then for our children and children's children to be aware of where did actually this knowledge come from? How did we acquire it? You know, yeah. in Canada, we forget sometimes, you know, we have certain issues and situations with, uh, with First Nations people that are very, very important for the diversity and the origination of, of a lot of culture on the West Coast, Central, you know, part of Canada and East Coast. And some of those teachings have been lost over decades. And now they're slowly kind of coming back, but they're almost being recreated from the outside on the inside. Uh, 
to me, it's very important to have all those teachings as part of the history part of school from early on. You know, why do we have totem poles on the West Coast, which tribes existed around Canada, in the U.S. as well? It's a really important part of the culture. Yeah. So, yeah, looking into the, into the past, but very much like standing here today and uh, creating those alliances and bringing everyone into the future. Uh, Sasha, I'd like to thank you very much for your time today. I think this conversation has, has illustrated, uh, you know, the need for global mindsets, the need for global influence, the need for global action. And that action is as much that new consciousness as it is recognizing that people on the ground floor you know, they're out in the streets, they're out in the rural communities, they need help. And, and also, you know, the idea of socialism, I don't think we should discount it so much in the face of capitalism. And, and maybe that there's going to be a new blended world in the future. I sure hope so. Thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure to see you and, and always great to share some thoughts and reshape them again, because you challenge how I think and I hope I do the same. And hopefully we're both better off after this conversation as are those who listen to it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I've learned a, a great amount of information and uh, these conversations are essential to me, Sasha. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be talking weekly as we've always been doing <laughs> going forward. Thanks so much. Pleasure.